The removal of fear doesn't mean you're not ever afraid. It's just that you're not going to let fear stop you from doing something. So understand your fears and where do they really stem from. Fear is just a very normal human emotion that shouldn't stop you from doing whatever you want in life. Welcome to the Meals That Made Me from First We Feast. I'm Adam Richmond, your host and resident gastronaut. The meals that we make, enjoy, and share are the heart of who we are. In this series, you'll hear from 10 guests across the culinary world sharing funny, illuminating, and touching stories prompted by their most meaningful food memories. And maybe you'll even be inspired to make a few memorable meals of your own. So let's dive in. With me today is someone I have genuinely wanted to speak to for a very long time. So I apologize for some big fanboy energy throughout this episode. I have totally been that thirsty guy throwing tweets his way in hopes he would notice me. And thankfully, life and whatever accomplishments I have amassed have put me in this position to finally talk with him. Chef Kwame Onwachi, for those who don't already know, is a deeply celebrated culinary superstar. Born and bred in the South Bronx, and though he is a James Beard award-winning chef lauded for kith and kin in the D.C. area, he's never held back about a rough, amazing, tumultuous path that has taken him from the slim jean, stylish cat in the web in the Bronx to slinging in and around college to cooking and living in Louisiana, an oil rig in the Gulf, to Igbo communities in Nigeria, the Caribbean, and kitchens all over the United States, ranging from Washington, D.C., to Los Angeles. It's all in his iconic and, in my opinion, must-read memoir, Notes from a Young Black Chef, that's being produced as a biopic featuring actor Lakeith Stanfield. He's a Top Chef judge and contestant who got done dirty by chicken and waffles. (laughs) He's cooked for Jay-Z, Beyonce, Dave Chappelle, the Obamas, the list goes on, man. Welcome, Kwame Mwachi. What's up? What's good, man? It's... it's it's an honor to be here, honestly. I've been a huge fan of yours for so long, so thank you for having me on this show. I've watched all your stuff, I think every <laughs> single episode of any, anything you've ever done, so I appreciate you having me here. Well, that that's it for us, because <laughs> <laughs> we can fanboy together. That's all I needed. <laughs> That's all. That's all. That's all I needed. Thank you so much for listening. I, that is insane. Yeah, to this me. has been a great but show. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> that's, he's got probably nine million pop-ups to do, a hundred other like cookbooks. But no, really and truly. So you first came on my radar. This is the truth. So I was working on a treatment for another show with a brilliant producer named Michael Bloom, and we were going through the chefs, and someone mentioned Kith and Kin and mentioned your name, and then. I'm not kidding you. The first video I saw wasn't an interview, wasn't anything. It was you making jerk chicken by yourself in the kitchen for Vice. And I remember, Mm -hmm. number one, you shared the history and the culinary anthropology, you know, the idea of rebellion, the idea of clandestine cooking in pits, the idea of using these flavors for preservation, the aldehydes and the smoke 
uh, preserving it, but you did it in this non-prescriptive, non-dogmatic, non-nerdy way. Mm -hmm. And the moment that got me dead ass, like very often chefs will try something and then they'll on like the dump and stir shows, which are Mm -hmm. totally fine. They'll try it and they'll go, isn't that tasty? Isn't that nice? And what I really love is it was almost in spite of yourself. Like you almost lost sight of the fact you were on camera. You blended the marinade, you take a sip on a spoon, like you take a little taste, you go, that's really good. And it was such an honest moment. And I love that it wasn't let me hide my light under a bushel. Let me feign false modesty. But also it wasn't this like swagger moment. It was someone who can go, my buddy says, I does this. Yeah, I do this. <laughs> That's, I guess, the best segue I could possibly give into my first question, because I always want to ask about the meals of your early childhood. You grew up in the Bronx. We were both raised by single moms. What your mom's done for you, sacrificed for you, really hit me like a gut punch. What you put her through also, sadly, hit me like a gut punch. But you talked about you're living with your mom in a small apartment. You help her with this catering business, tender age of five. She throws an apron on you. You couldn't go. Your sister had to go to the Mm -hmm. the gigs until you were old enough. But you were now in your own little Dexter's laboratory with all these flavors. (laughs) And you were just trying to be a normal kid. But this is really fascinating to me. Your mom says, what do you want for your birthday? You say, fisherman's pie. (laughs) Mm-hmm. A lot of other kids are saying toys. I want Nintendo. I want this, that, and the third. You want Fisherman's mm-hmm. Pie. So my question is, what was it about Fisherman's Pie that made it so special growing up? I think for me, it was just something that was so decadent. You know, you have the palms puree. You had the Parmesan on top brulee. You had this like Mornay sauce, for lack of better words, you know, that had crawfish and crab and salmon and, and sometimes lobster in it. And it was just, a, it was a, for me as a kid, like I love seafood. My family, you know, part of my family is from Louisiana. So we ate a lot of seafood when we got together. It was a dish that was, for me, that was like the creme de la creme of, of anything that I've ever eaten. That was my foie gras. That was my caviar as a child was this fisherman's pie. And not only because of just eating it, but the process of of making it, you know, I would make it with my mom and that time together for me was so beautiful. So, so yeah, it was always my requested birthday present was fisherman's pie. I, I had an extreme love for food growing up. I didn't watch, I mean, I did watch Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network, but the Food Network was my Nickelodeon. They were just like trying to cook with the techniques that they had. And to be able to see that, especially, you know, from the Bronx, I didn't have an opportunity to see restaurants cooking at those levels. It was so inspiring to me. So that was my fine dining experience was eating this fisherman's pie. And that's what I wanted um, every single birthday. One thing that I think is fascinating, though, is that you tend to use this elevated technique that you've now acquired to reinterpret. Will, will, will we ever see a, a reincarnation of your fisherman's pie? Yeah, so I had one, right? I had one at, at one of my restaurants. So it was um, it was Kin Madai that was flown in from Siski Market every day. And I would cook it on Binchotan coals skin side down. So it would have this like super smokiness. Like I cooked it directly on the coals, a nice little piece. And on the bottom, there was a lobster uh, espuma. So it was like 
lobster stock and then I would throw Parmesan rinds into the lobster stock and reduce that down and then emulsify some cream into it and some aromatics and then, you know, foam it up. And then there was um, a spinach garlic puree because that's what's traditionally in Fisherman's Pie, but it wasn't in my mom's. I just wanted to like play on both things. So it would, it would be that. And then there was a potato crumble instead of like- the crust. Yeah. So like we like, you know, blitzed a bunch of like Yukon Gold potatoes in a Roboku until they were all like in tiny little pieces and then cooked them in oil from cold to hot. So it was just this like, it was like the bottom of a chip bag, unlimited of that oh. <laughs> on top of it. Um, you need to sell those, man. Yeah. So it was dope. So, th- so I did my fisherman's pie um with like in that version mom richmond should you listen to this i'd like fisherman's pie for my birthday all right (laughs) so speaking of mom we're gonna go to the meals of your mentors your mom was incredible i mean i still remember her taking you to these parties you know when you were wilding you went to nigeria when you were 10 you had to go to a call center three hours away, wait mm-hmm. online. And then you were told on this phone call, and the pause was so long when you said, you know, it's almost time for the school year. When am I coming back? And she said, not not for a while. That's you learn respect, correct? Absolutely. <laughs> and learning discipline in a way that meant carrying heavyweights across the field and discipline that we don't have in the Western world. Digging your height. Really? Digging your height if you got in really bad trouble. Clearing a whole field of grass with a machete, that's another crazy one. But digging your height had to be the most extreme form of punishment. It must be whack, like, I have to say, just as a little side note before I get to my question, I know I tend to go New York to Los Angeles by way of Vancouver (laughs) sometimes when I ask these things. But I got to ask, for you having done this and walked that walk, you know, digging your height, clearing a field with a machete, is it weird for you when you're around like <laughs> Western raised chefs that have no concept of that when they talk about things being hard or tough discipline? You know, yes and no. I think you can't quantify pain, you know, unless you felt it. So like if your degree of pain is stubbing your toe, like that's what's hurt the most to you in life. It's like someone that's like went through people that go through things like you're saying. So like they don't know to what extreme that really feels like. So, but yes, there's another side of me that's like, <laughs> this is not really that bad. Right. Um, I'm just grateful for my experiences though, you know, and don't really try to like diminish other people's experiences. It just makes me better equipped for what I have to go through in life. I got this. And I think that's what helps me push through a lot of things. So I just like, I use it as motivation within my own life and that's what keeps me going. A lot of people always say like, where do you get your drive from? And I'm like, it's a culmination of so many different things. It's growing up in the Bronx and and living in fear for a large portion of my life, but then making it out of that. Facts. It's living in Nigeria and living in fear. And then, you know, being one of the most popular kids in school, like going through these, being brave is just being courageous when you're scared. It doesn't mean you can't be scared, but just like pushing through. So I think all of those things really affect my life and it affects the, just the way that I live my life right now. Quite frankly, I think in earnest, when someone is able to admit their fear, there are a few things more brave. Mm-hmm. So then you go to Nigeria 
And I really think that you've probably introduced more people to Egusi than anyone in the Western world. Mm -hmm. I mean that in earnest. <laughs> so now we fast forward years later. Yep. You end up back in Baton Rouge. I'm not going to give away the book. The book is, is a superb read. So you get a job. You immediately deal with thinly veiled classism and racism when Tex asks you if you could read. Yeah, that was crazy. And your response is, yeah, I can read. And you even said that there's a pause Mm -hmm. A pregnant pause that only made the moment sit heavily. And you realized it wasn't a matter of racism. They were Bayou boys that yeah. were doing this hard work. And the the moment you got a chance to cook, you did your etouffee. And they started popping their heads in, saying, you may be careful, I grew up on this. And mm -hmm. it ended up with them saying, I'm going to go in and slap my mom for feeding <laughs> her what she's been feeding me. Yep. Now, I got to ask, mm -hmm. I was always curious in addition to the etouffee that you described, what were some of the other meals that you made for these hardworking boys that gave them this taste of home and allowed you, this African-American guy from the Bronx, to be able to connect with their experience? You know, the first thing that comes to mind was honestly steak. Like steak and mashed potatoes was something that I made. But I would take everyone's order down. Like, how do you like your steak cooked? Like medium rare, rare, you know, well done. And I would cook all these steaks for these 30 people. And my mom's steak recipe, I think my mom makes the best steak because she puts a ton of house spice on it or Creole spice. Okay. And lots of garlic and base it with the butter, thyme, and garlic ribeyes. So it has like so much flavor and it's like super juicy. So I remember making that. I remember making roast beef. I remember making... <laughs> I know this is silly, but it, it, meatloaf. I made meatloaf, but I got the recipe from Dean and DeLuca. So that was one of the like- Oh, word? And it, it's phenomenal, phenomenal. The Dean and DeLuca cookbook. By the way, is your ketchup recipe anywhere? That's kind of my new obsession now, is, is making a lot of my own spices from scratch. Like I mm -hmm. love making my own mayo. I love making my own mustards. Is your ketchup recipe anywhere that people could find it? No, I believe in, in buying Heinz, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> See, that's why I love you, man. <laughs> I, like, I only did it out of necessity. I will never do it again. Heinz, it's the best thing ever, man. Like, it's so good. <laughs> My buddy Josh Sharkey used to work for Floyd Cardo's, and then he opened up Bark Hot Dogs, two blocks from Barclays in Brooklyn. And they used to do, like, he would do a, a brown butter to actually baste them. And there were other chefy things, but he even said... We were going to bake our own buns. We like Pepperidge Farm. We were going to yeah. make our own ketchup. We like Heinz. We like we like what's French's. The, yeah, what's the deal with people want? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's very good. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and then, and all you're trying to do is make something that tastes like that. It's not like you're making up your own thing. So, yeah, Heinz, Heinz for life, baby. <laughs> okay. You once said that when something has a story, it has a soul. And you've said that, you know, you're cooking to share a memory. And that's the only way you can get behind something. You said if if you can't feel it, there's no point in you doing it. Mm -hmm. What dish tells, at least for right now, that pops to your mind the most important story to you personally? I would say it would have to be gumbo because it's so deeply rooted in, you know, African culture as well as like African-American culture. And it tells the story of, of so many people. I think it's the most American dish out of them all but also the most un-American dish, <laughs> like at the same time. Can you break that down a little bit? Because it was culminated in America, but it wouldn't happen without so many different cultures, 
you know, the Germanic settlers in Louisiana, the fishermen from the Canary Islands, the Native Americans, the Africans, you know, that were in America. So let's break down those ingredients. You're saying the Germans because of the Andouille? From the Andouille, the, uh-huh. the fishermen from the Canary Islands coming and setting up ports. You have your, your Native Americans teaching people how to cook with bark, you know, like sassafras and, and things like that. You have your Africans with okra and even the word gumbo coming from ngombo, which is, you know, an Igbo term. And then you have, you know, your African-Americans who like put it all together. <laughs> that, that really like, really embraced that and, and, and made it delicious, but also put it within the lexicon of, of their cuisine. So for me, it tells a story, but I loved it before I even knew any of that shit. Like it was just something that my family always makes when we get together. And I had no reason why I loved it. So I think it, it was because it was maybe the time where we weren't fighting. It was like we were all in the bowl eating, uh, but it's so complex because of all of those different regions that are in it. So my family makes it with just a very, very deep dark roux. We do uh, crab, shrimp, chicken, and andouille. So like pretty much everything in there. Holy Trinity or the standard? Holy Trinity. And we also use like a really, really deeply flavored shrimp stock to make it all. I add roasted chicken stock in it as well to balance it out because I also add a lot of seafood to it. So, um, and then we serve it with steamed white rice. Okay. So I want to talk about the meals of your biggest moments. I had to sell candy for my sports teams in school. And I was always jealous of the moxie it took for anyone to sell it on the train. And when you were on the come up, you saw someone selling candy and you realize like per car, what he was able to make in that amount of time. You did the math. You went to BJ's, created your Franken box. Mm-hmm. I've seen the pictures of it with all the different, it was a box that had the labels of each of the different candies. Yeah, You rehearsed the pattern in your sister's mirror and you actually sold 20 racks, $20,000 worth of candy. And side note, almost resulted in a little bit of warfare when you would come up against other candy kids, and it's pretty audacious, and you really dove first to this entrepreneurship, and you've come incredibly far. Now, I mean, you've catered, you know, for Jay and Beyonce's post-Oscar gold party. Uh, the, the book opens with you cooking at the museum for the Obamas, and you've served everything from chopped cheese sandwiches with Wagyu and truffles. You talk about those incredible allium shoots in the beginning, crustacean station with all the Crayola coutrenon. Mm-hmm. I got to know, what has been, whether it's for Jay's gold party or some of these other events you've done for the well-heeled glitterati among us, what are some of your favorite dishes that you have cooked for these events? I think, you know, when I opened up the African-American Museum, yep. this roasted squab that I did with habanada jus. So habanada is like the habanero pepper without the capsaicin. So I made a jus out of that from that juice. I think that was like one of my favorite dishes that I've made for some reason. It, it was just so elegant. There was a sofrito puree, like a red bean sofrito puree that reminded me of like growing up in the Bronx and getting rice and beans and that Mm. half chicken. It was like a, it was a dish of that, but just, you know, with elevated ingredients. And it was for the opening of the African-American Museum. It was honoring David Ajay. Like 
I just think that that moment, that dish was like one of the most important things I put out. How did you prepare the squab? I dry aged it, I think for like 20 days. Um, Is it hard dry aging poultry? So not not like a red meat poultry, like squab or duck, you know? It, um, it takes on a really, really great flavor. So I take the squab, uh, I hung it and um, dry aged it for like 21 days. And then I took the legs and the, um, like kind of like the thigh off. And I just like seared that and put that on the plate. But then I roasted the whole cage. Um, in butter, you know, I roseate it constantly in butter, thyme, and garlic until it was like cooked to like perfect medium rare. And then I carved it off the cage. So you get that outside crispy skin, this beautiful, like tender melt in your mouth, aged squab. And then you had this bright habanada jus in the center with a swipe of like this red bean sofrito. And I think I had like glazed hakurai turnips, like little tiny, like Ooh. Tokyo turnips. So it was like, I just love that dish so much because it reminded me of that dish from the Bronx, um, but it was it was done to honor you know such an important individual. One of the things that I think people don't realize they'll see the glitz, the glamour, your name associated with it. But one of the things that I think people forget is something you remind them of is with all the fancy, you know, the the Vushtoffs and the Hankels and the Globals and um, whatever, Cuisinarts and Robocoops and whatever, that you talk about how kitchens and catering and successful dishes operate with Sharpies and rolls of tape. Mm-hmm. And uh, spreadsheets. And spreadsheets, <laughs> which... Yeah. Yes, and your mother actually had one of my favorite quotes ever, which was about the prep list. That trust the prep the list. Prep list mm-hmm. Trust the prep list because you said, and I want you to correct my misquoting if I do, but you make the prep list when your mind is at its most settled. Exactly. The only other ancillary question I'm going to throw on before I get to the meals of your dreams, you're doing crafty. The pot of the, I think it was carbonara, whatever drops. I'm sorry, am I, yeah. am I triggering you right now, uh, yeah. Mikey? I'm sorry. Lord. But you said you threw something together in 10 minutes. You said at that point in the interview, you didn't remember. I'm hoping by now you might have had some time to think because it's something that me as a fan of yours has always wanted to know. What did you th- What did you serve in that 10 minutes? Do you remember? You know what? I think I made like a linguine with like a pistachio pesto. That's what I think I made. I love that that's what you're able to throw together in 10 minutes. <laughs> Dead ass. I'd be like, y'all like mac and cheese and tuna? <laughs> I, I think that's all I had. I had like the stuff to garnish what I was going to make the pasta with, which I think was like chopped pistachios, some like shaved parm, parsley, some parsley, some basil. I just blitzed it, cooked some more pasta and then tossed it in that with a bunch of chili flakes, called it a day. And people were like very, very happy. Skill is skill, man. Cream rises to the top. So I want to talk about the meals of your dreams. I got to know, like, living or dead, ingredients in pantry wide open, who would you cook for and what would you make for them? Living or dead, dream meal, dream guest, dream recipe. I'm going to go with, I'm I'm doing Taco Tuesday for LeBron James. That's what I'm doing. For real? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Why Taco some, Tuesday for LeBron? Is, is tacos his favorite food? I didn't know that. He he loves eating tacos on Tuesdays. 
he always like talks about that. So that's what I want to do in this moment. Maybe tomorrow I'll have a different answer. No, that's cool. Right now I want to do tacos with LeBron James. Excellent, excellent answer. So we always like to leave the listeners with a little bit of a rapid fire. Let's do it. Let's do it. Feel free to just let her let her rip on this one. You ready? Best pizza topping. Pepperoni. Easy. Easy. Best vegetable to eat raw. Hickama? I don't know. Like I nearly I was yeah. literally, I put that in your head, man. I, <laughs> I sent that. I sent that to you. Andrew Zimmerman had said radish. As soon as he said that, I'm like, I wonder if he's going to say something like burdock or jicama. All right, yeah. cool. Jicama, jicama, the thing that I, I remember going to a place. Well, why would they put green apple in this? All right, favorite cookbook <laughs> of all time. Favorite cookbook of all time is mine, My American. Pick it up. <laughs> favorite condiment. Come on now. Ketchup, baby. Beautiful. Come on, everyone in Liverpool is like, good light, good light. <laughs> Best tip for French fries. Ketchup. Two times, two times. Two times. <laughs> uh, your white clef in the background of my mind. <laughs> two times. Uh, mm-hmm. Favorite fast food item? Probably be the fish fillet from McDonald's. Okay, favorite song you like to cook to? Would probably be Apple Tree by Erica Badu. Wow, wow. Deep cut. Really love this. Okay, so this, I always throw in at the very end of the rapid fire, a special one just for that guest. At your TED Talk, you said that the removal of fear was the final and most important ingredient for success. You said, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, ambition, skill, talent, determination, and passion. But I I feel that for many people, maybe even to a degree myself included, that's, that's easier said than done. So what would you recommend to someone who wanted to work on the removal of the fear of failure, which you said is the key ingredient to success? How would you recommend someone going about that? I would say understanding fear in general, because the removal of fear, it doesn't mean you're not ever afraid. It's just that you're not going to let fear stop you from doing something. So I would say kind of like understand your fears and like, where do they really stem from? And is that stopping you from achieving your goal? So, and if you can understand the answer to that question, mm-hmm. then then you can remove it essentially, because then you can identify it and you you understand that that is just a very normal human emotion that shouldn't stop you from doing whatever you want in life. Brilliant answer and, and words to truly live by. And, you know, if I weren't already such a rabid, <laughs> frothing at the mouth fanboy, you know, just these responses would only augment that. Where could the people find you? What do you got coming up? Let it rip. So you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Chef Kwame Onwachi. You can come check out my restaurant at Lincoln Center opening up in the fall. You can also check out my books. You know, I have uh, notes from a young black chef and my America. So, you know, tune in. Well, thank you, man. I know how busy you are. Thank you to everyone listening for joining us for The Meals That Made Me. We hope you enjoyed this incredible interview with the great Kwame Onwachi and that you are inspired to dive deeper into the meals of your childhood, your mentors, your travels, and the meals that continue to take you places now and into the future. Join us next time as we talk with famed chef Nina Compton, James Beard award-winning St. Lucian chef on The Meals That Made Her. Stay tuned for that one. Uh, again, Kwame, you already know how I, I how much respect and reverential respect I have for you and what you've accomplished. And I personally can't wait to see what you got next, man. 
Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on here and let's go get dinner soon. I'm in New York. I would be honored and best of luck with the restaurant. This podcast is produced by First We Feast in collaboration with Complex Networks. Our host is me, Adam Richmond. Our executive producers are Chris Schoenberger, Nicola Lynch, and Justin Bolas. Our head of podcast production is Jen Stewart. Our supervising producer is Shiva Bayat. Our senior producer is Jocelyn Aram. Our associate producers are Nina Pollock and Catherine Hernandez. Our production managers are Shamara Rochester and Natasha Bennett. Our recording engineer and sound designer is Andrew Guastella. Thanks to the team at BuzzFeed. For more First We Feast content, head to youtube.com slash First We Feast or at First We Feast on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you enjoy these interviews and you want to hear more, then please drop a five-star review and we... We'll see you next time on The Meals That Made Me.